0: What is up Ewoo crew, it's the Raven, back to share another shocking, interesting, or just strange, but very true story with you. Today we are going to be covering a case so horrific that it will leave you speechless, the notorious Wichita massacre. I must warn you, this one is extremely disturbing. And if you're anything like me, it will have you double checking the locks on your doors and constantly looking over your shoulder for weeks to come. So if you can handle it, let's dive in because the twist at the end of this one is absolutely mind blowing. Our story begins with Reginald and Jonathan Carr, two brothers from Dodge City, Kansas who shared an especially strong bond, one that would eventually lead them to work together to commit a massacre. The young men had endured a rather rough childhood, as after the death of their two-year-old sister caused the family to spiral into dysfunction, they had to grow up fast. It has been alleged that abuse and neglect were prevalent in their formative years, and some family members have even come forward with allegations that Reginald and Jonathan were victims of violating assaults that we cannot discuss in detail here on YouTube, purportedly at the hands of their mother's various boyfriends over the years. By the time Reginald was 18, he had been through his fair share of physical altercations in school. Meanwhile, his younger brother, Jonathan, at only 16 years old, had even attempted to take his own life whilst in High School. By the time the Carr brothers reached their early adulthood, neither of them were strangers to local law enforcement. 22-year-old Reginald and 20-year-old Jonathan were said to have had a lengthy criminal record, one that they intended to make even longer if given the chance. And unfortunately, that chance would come sooner rather than later. The two ended up traveling to Wichita, Kansas with the intention to do something that neither of them had ever done before. And one cold night, soon after their arrival, a young man named Andrew Schreiber, unfortunately found himself in the wrong place at the very worst time. Keep in mind, it was winter in Kansas and the temperature had been dropping below freezing. So most people had chosen to be safe and cozy within their own homes, but not everyone was so lucky. Andrew was intercepted at gunpoint while returning to his vehicle after shopping at a convenience store and his captors drove him around to different ATMs, forcing him to withdraw money for them before taking him to a remote area, shooting holes into one of his tires and leaving him there. Now, this event is interesting because although many people think of it as the first stop on the brothers' crime spree, only Reginald was ever actually convicted of this crime and Jonathan was found not guilty in relation to this incident meaning that whoever Reginald's accomplice was remains unidentified to this day. Only three days after the attack on Andrew, Reginald and Jonathan were driving through neighborhoods in Wichita when they stumbled upon a woman who had been sitting in her car parked in her driveway. Some sources report that the brothers had actually intentionally followed her home. Either way, to the Carr brothers, she seemed like the perfect target, especially because the woman, Linda Ann Walinda, was 55 years old and wasn't much of a match for both of the men. Anne, a cellist and a librarian, was extremely startled when one of the brothers approached her vehicle seemingly out of nowhere and indicated to Anne that he needed help. Anne complied and rolled down her window to see what he needed. The second she did so, she found that the stranger's expression had changed completely and he raised a gun to her eye level. Anne had been so startled by the sudden change of the situation that she instinctively went to start her already running SUV, causing the engine to sputter and grind. As she rushed to put the car in reverse in an attempt to escape, one of the brothers fired three shots into Anne. One of the bullets ended up severing her spine. Somehow, in her pain and confusion, Anne managed to pound on the horn of her car, getting the attention of her neighbor across the street who called the police. Almost immediately, the Carr brothers fled. When officers arrived at the scene of the crime, Anne's attackers were nowhere to be found. Anne was quickly rushed to the hospital where she was able to give a rather basic description of the two men who had ambushed her and the car that they had been driving in. The descriptions that Anne provided to police were not much, but they were enough to lead investigators to assume that they were potentially dealing with the same attackers who had targeted Andrew just days before. Unfortunately, the gunshot wounds that Ann had sustained proved to be fatal, and shortly after the incident occurred, Anne died. I wonder if the brothers were planning to rob Anne here or if they were just killing for the sake of killing. It would soon become evident that these crimes brought them some sick sense of entertainment, but in a thousand years, I couldn't have predicted how twisted their fantasies were about to get. Despite having just gone to a shocking new extreme, the Carr brothers were far from done. So they made another attempt at satiating their desire for violence. And at this time, it was far more gruesome than anyone could have imagined. If you were disturbed by sensitive and graphic discussions, this is your last chance to bow out before it gets truly dark. On Thursday, December 14th, 2000, a woman whose identity has been kept secret for her own protection and privacy, but is referred to as Holly G., had gone to spend the night at her boyfriend's home. Holly's boyfriend, Jason Befford, was a science teacher and coach who lived with a few roommates, 27-year-old financial analyst, Bradley Hacke, and 29-year-old priesthood student, Aaron Sander. Together, the three young men coexisted and occasionally welcomed the company of their respective girlfriends. At the beginning of that fateful evening, Holly arrived at Jason's apartment with her pet schnauzer, Nikki, at approximately 8.30 p.m. Jason wasn't home yet, so his roommates let Holly into the apartment while she waited for him. Holly went into Jason's room and proceeded to watch some television aimlessly. And as she was a teacher herself, she passed the time grading papers. Aaron's former girlfriend, Heather Muller, who was a church preschool teacher, arrived shortly after, and as the time passed throughout the evening, she found herself sleeping in Aaron's bed while Aaron slept on the couch downstairs. Bradley, meanwhile, slept in another room that was located in the basement. When Jason finally arrived home, he locked up the unit before entering his bedroom and joining Holly in his bed. As the silence of the night fell over the household, none could have prepared themselves for the kind of unexpected horrors that laid ahead for them. Shortly after 11 PM, the front porch light came on. Jason and Holly were still awake and they waited in tense silence as they tried to determine what exactly had caused the light to activate. But before they could investigate further, the couple heard what sounded like muffled voices. Then the muffled tones turned into full-blown shouting. To both Jason and Holly's surprise and horror as they laid in bed, a stranger managed to force open the door to the bedroom. The second, after Holly's eyes focused on the stranger, he tore the sheets off of the bed, exposing the couple. Moments later, another tall man entered the room in a similar manner, dragging their friend Aaron in from the living room before tossing him onto the bed with Holly and Jason and asking the three terrified individuals if anyone else was in the house at the time. Both intruders were holding guns. Despite their better judgment, Holly, Jason, and Aaron revealed to the intruders that Bradley was sleeping in the basement while Heather was in one of the other bedrooms. The Carr brothers grabbed Bradley and Heather and brought them into Jason's room with the others. Once the entire household was in one place, the group quickly realized that they had no way to deal with these two armed men holding them captive. Reginald and Jonathan then ordered everyone to take off all of their clothes and hand over any money that they had on them. They also complained that someone needed to shut up Holly's dog or they would shoot it. For the next hour, the cars made it clear that they were no longer interested in money they had something more sinister on their minds. Reginald and Jonathan forced the victims into Jason's bedroom closet. Then in different groups, they would bring them out into the hall and make them sit near the household's bar and force them to engage in intercourse with one another. Someone urinated in the closet out of fear. Throughout the incident, the cars forced all of the men and Heather to engage in non-consensual intercourse with Holly. Aaron had recently become a divinity student and could not bring himself to do so but he eventually complied after being hit hard in the back of the head. Eventually the car sent Holly back to the closet and replaced her with Heather who underwent the same horrific treatment. Once the Car brothers had forced the entirety of the group to partake in their plans, they proceeded to ask who of the victims had ATM cards. Reginald took the victims one by one to nearby ATMs and Jason's own pickup truck. He then forced them each to withdraw as much money as possible, ending up with around $2,000 total from all of the victims. While Reginald was away, Jonathan decided to take the situation into his own hands. Jonathan brought Holly out of the closet and proceeded to assault her as well. Once he was finished, he then did the same to Heather. After Holly's trip to the ATM, Reginald proceeded to assault her as well, before Jonathan again violated both young women. But Holly was the most scared when Reginald spoke one simple sentence. Relax, I'm not going to kill you yet. Once they were satisfied, the Carr brothers ransacked the house and searched for valuables. As they did so, they came across an empty coffee can or a popcorn box, this detail is debated, under Jason's bed. Inside of the can or box was an engagement ring. The men swung open the closet door and shouted, whose is this? Jason weakly raised his hand and the intruders asked him if it was the only one of its kind. With a sad, flat expression, Jason nodded, looked at Holly and croaked. That's for you, I was going to ask you to marry me." That's how Holly found out her boyfriend had planned to propose on Christmas Eve. Unfortunately for the couple, that ring would never end up on Holly's finger. About three hours after the hellish night had begun, the brothers led all of the victims outside into the yard. One by one, they were forced into two cars and taken on a short drive away from the house. Once both vehicles came to a stop, the Car brothers forced everyone into an empty soccer field and told them to kneel. The most horrible feeling flooded over each of the friends as it dawned on them what was about to happen. Oh my God, they're going to shoot us, Holly cried. One at a time, Reginald and Jonathan shot each of the victims before watching the young friends bleed out in the snow. The silence of the dark field interrupted only by each friend pleading for their lives, but to no avail. Holly was last and after this final bullet was fired, the brothers kicked her limp body so it fell face down into the snow alongside the others. Then the Carr brothers ran over each of them with a truck before speeding off into the night. The scene was absolutely horrific, but despite the brutality of their actions, the Carr brothers had almost pulled off the perfect crime. Almost. This is where things get absolutely insane and almost unbelievable. But that night, a real miracle took place. You see, once the attackers had driven away, a disoriented Holly realized that she had actually survived the attack. She had been shot in the back of the head, but the bullet itself had not killed her. Rather, she had played dead until she was sure that the brothers were not coming back anytime soon. But how in the world had she made it out of this dire situation alive? Well, it turns out she had a hair accessory to thank. Holly's unlikely survival was due to the fact that the bullet had struck a plastic barrette she wore in her hair, deflecting the killing blow, I find it so crazy to think about her putting that hair clip in the morning before, having no idea that it would end up saving her life. But still, Holly was far from out of the woods. She frantically checked her companions, rolling her boyfriend Jason over to find blood coming from one of his eyes. All she could do was take off her sweater, the only scrap of clothing she had left, and tie it around his head in a feeble attempt to stop the bleeding. Her bravery and ability to think clearly in such a traumatic situation is admirable, but it is heartbreaking to imagine how terrifying and devastatingly sad these moments must have been. She knew that the rest of her friends were either dead or in extremely critical condition. And even though she probably felt weaker and more drained than ever before, she knew the only option was to leave right away and get help. Barefoot and naked with a wound in her skull, Holly found the strength to get help. She ended up running more than a mile in the 17.6 degree weather, through snow across a field and construction site, around a pond and through the brush, until she finally spotted a house that had white Christmas lights on in the distance. Frantically crossing over several fences, some with barbed wire, Holly cowered and felt a rush of fear every time a car passed on the nearby road. She had no idea if any of those dark vehicles were the brothers coming back to finish the job and so she would quickly lie down in the snow again and again to camouflage herself. But finally, she reached the residence. She began to bang on the door, pleading for someone to help her. A couple answered the door, and although they were shocked at the sight of a naked woman covered in blood at 2 a.m., they kindly wrapped Holly in a blanket before offering to call the police. Holly was afraid that she would die before help arrived, so she recounted the entire night to the couple and later a 911 dispatcher as fast as she could. When the police pulled up outside, Holly was in fact still alive and was subsequently questioned before she was sent off to the hospital where she ended up surviving her wounds, which included a fractured skull and frostbitten feet. But sadly, her friends and dog were not so lucky. After the Carr brothers had shot everyone, they returned to the house and killed Holly's dog with a golf club. I have no idea why they would feel the need to do this, but I guess I shouldn't even be surprised at this point. Now, I find what happened next really intriguing. So law enforcement goes to the apartment where these atrocities had just occurred so they could secure the crime scene. And when one of the officers was standing outside, he noticed something very peculiar. A car was driving by, which was already a little strange since it was 4 a.m. in a secluded residential area with very little traffic. Not to mention the snow-packed streets made driving very difficult but he caught onto a small detail that ended up being extremely telling. The driver stared straight ahead the whole time while passing, not once acknowledging the obvious crime scene surrounded by police tape. And then the vehicle headed back in the direction it had first come from. This was so suspicious that the officer took down the license plate number and instructed a sergeant to pull the car over and identify the driver. When the man behind the wheel handed over his identification, it turned out that it was indeed Reginald himself. However, at this point, the officers didn't have enough information to know their culprit was right in front of them. And so after a short stop, Reginald was allowed to continue on his way. From what I could gather, it seems that police were only on the lookout for Jason's stolen truck at this point. And so the white Plymouth that Reginald was driving didn't alert them. But get this, he was actually on his way to swap cars with Jonathan. So little did he know he had just escaped by the skin of his teeth. It wouldn't be until later that morning when Reginald went to his girlfriend's apartment that the jig would finally be up. That's because one of the neighbors who was watching the news was horrified to notice that the exact pickup truck police were looking for in relation to a quadruple homicide was parked outside right next to his own vehicle. The man watched as someone carried a big TV out of the pickup truck and into their apartment and then he quickly ran to his car and sped to the nearest police station to report what he'd observed. Sure enough, when officers arrived at the apartment complex, they were sickened to see the discarded bedding and clothing of the five friends who had been attacked strewn around the area. When police knocked on Reginald's door, he actually moved like he was going to jump off a side balcony to escape, but it was too late and he was surrounded. Meanwhile, Jonathan was in store for his own rude awakening. He had been staying with a friend and was shocked when she confronted him in the morning about the news reports, after she realized that he was wearing the exact clothes police said their suspect had on, as well as the fact that one of the cars authorities were looking for was parked right outside. Reginald's girlfriend had reportedly described the white Plymouth that Jonathan now had to police. At first, I couldn't believe Jonathan didn't take the time to at least change his outfit for this very reason. But then I remembered, oh yeah, he didn't think they'd left behind any witnesses, so why bother? He hesitantly asked his friend how she knew about all this stuff, and boy, was he floored when she explained that one of the victims had actually survived the brutal attack. Long story short, the police were soon called, and after a brief foot chase, Jonathan was apprehended as well. And get this, one chilling detail I found while researching was that while he was riding in the car following his arrest, He asked what capital murder was, how the death penalty was administered, and whether a person who received a lethal injection felt pain. I just find these questions kind of eerie considering how little empathy he had for the helpless victims just hours earlier. Ultimately, the Carr brothers were linked to the other recent crimes in the Wichita area. The state charged each of the brothers with more than 40 counts, including murder, and the jury returned separate guilty verdicts. As I mentioned earlier, both brothers were convicted when it came to the Ann Walenta shooting and the quadruple murder, but Jonathan ended up being acquitted of all counts related to the carjacking of Andrew Schreiber. In the end, they were both sentenced to death, though their final sentence has been up in the air for years, as debates over the death penalty continue. On a slightly lighter note, reports say that during the trial, Holly and Andrew Schreiber comforted each other and it is believed that the two eventually started a relationship and years later got married. The Wichita massacre is a terrifying story, one that forces all who hear it to wonder why the Carr brothers committed such heinous crimes. A former FBI agent summed it up best when he admitted, we can't find the motivation other than evil. And perhaps that is all the motivation some folks need.